Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for gathering us today. Thank you for the blessings of this fellowship and for encouraging each of us one through another, Father. And uh, we, we thank you for the bond that unites us and that this bond is heavenly and it is fundamentally and first of all with uh, our precious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has accomplished it all for us and now the free gift of salvation is our eternal possession, never to be taken away from us, never to be threatened. That cannot be threatened, Father, and your word of truth has established that. And thank you so much for removing our blindness and giving us understanding of where we stand before you and that we stand righteous before you. That shed blood of Christ uh, made the difference. He really did pay the penalty for all of our sins, and and that was accounted to us personally as all of our sins were accounted to him. And thank you so much, Father, for the blessed truth of our salvation. Thank you, Father, that we can be gathered here today and have your peace and joy. Thank you for your comfort that's been granted to us also and for enabling us to rest, therefore, and not be in constant turmoil as so many are uh, around us and in the world at large. Father, I pray for our nation that you would deliver us from the bond of evil and the evil one, influencing so many uh, throughout our land and around the world, certainly, and uh, influencing or attempting to also we ourselves and and others that we dearly love. So, Father, I just uh, pray for us all that your good hand of uh, grace would continue to to uh, abound in its fruit in in us and through us. We're so thankful for the opportunity to to pray for others and to reach out to them and offer help when we can. And we're so. Uh, blessed when we do so. So, Father, may we be lights in the darkness and uh, take advantage of the open doors that you've provided. All the suffering, this great loss there in the southern part of our country and those that have reached out and will reach out to them and are helping as best they can, but I'm sure they are all feeling quite overwhelmed at this point in time. So, Father, I pray that those that know you would be strengthened by your grace and your your love, and uh, you show the way forward there for many. And may many be drawn to saving faith through these great trials that they have undergone there. Certainly pray for, for them, Father, and that the enemy is in the middle of much of this, Father. So we do pray for... Uh, believers, Father, who are in those college environments and in the high school environments where these kinds of persecution are rampant, Father, I pray for them, that those that know them, who know the Lord, that know you, Heavenly Father, might reach out often and comfort them 
in their trials and might bind together in a special way. And all of us remember how uh, you provided for our needs in troubled times and how others made the difference. So, Father, I pray that the comfort that we receive might be shared with others and and that they might do the same and that that great comfort, Father, that only you can provide uh, even a peace that passes all understanding that that would multiply in these dark times and in these dark days. So, Father, we would have then great cause for thanksgiving to you. And, Father, we do have great cause. And as we open your word this morning, I pray that your blessings would rest upon us in a special way. And I pray that in Christ's name. And amen. Well, we are again blessed today uh, by having... Uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians open in front of us. And and it is just an amazing, an amazing letter. But what I've increasingly been learning is that we, we need to go quite slowly or we might miss the blessings. <clears throat> and uh, so that's what we've been attempting to do <laughs> is to uh, not miss the blessings. So the title today is the same as last time. We're in part two today. Godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. And there's a very, very big difference between the two. Between the sorrow, which is godly. In other words, it comes from God. It is part of the work of God in us that we sorrow in that manner. Big difference between that, godly sorrow, and the sorrow of the world which is at root ungodly, even when we ourselves are the ones participating in it, okay? It may feel good for the moment. Well, how could sorrow feel good? Well, if you see certain benefits coming to you as a result, you may feel uh, satisfied in some way. But that kind of sorrow, which is really not of God, doesn't lead to anything long-term and certainly uh, no blessing of the sort that we have as believers who sorrow in a godly way. And that's the major uh, point that Paul is making here in this letter. Paul even says to draw the contrast as explicitly in, in concrete terms, as he often does, he says, ungodly sorrow leads to death. And then unbelievers, of course, suffer that death eternally. But even for believers who participate in a sorrow that's ultimately not from God, it's just human, it's just personal, it just has our own interests in mind. That kind of sorrow leads the believer into life situations that are not the best that the Lord offers us. And in particular, there's the loss of the comfort and rest of Almighty God, which is the gift to believers who are dwelling in his wonderful and abundant grace and truth. And so that's our focus today as we continue in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. But Paul does mention comfort, uh, even in the first verses. You know, if you do a little word study on the word comfort, <laughs> As you should do. In fact, you should learn how to use, how to do word studies 
because they're the greatest blessing, really. And I've I've learned much of what I have learned down through these more than uh, more than uh, seven decades of knowing the Lord and more than five decades of studying the Word carefully um, through word studies. Uh, what I've learned for the most part through word studies are are things that I wonder if I could have learned any other way. But when we do a word study on the word comfort, we find out that Paul uses the word comfort, whether in noun forms, whether in verbal forms, over 40 times in this one letter. <laughs> I don't know whether there's any word. I should have looked at grace since it's found so often in uh, some letters, but uh, any letter that has one word in its various forms found over 40 times, I'm not sure. Sure, it's probably uh, only comfort uh, that Paul uses that often in his letters, and in this one in, in particular. So what is it that characterizes uh, the second letter of the Corinthians? It is the comfort of God. And that relates directly to our theme today, which is that there are two sorrows. And one ultimately leads to comfort, the comfort of God. (laughs) And the other can never lead to that and will only lead to uh, what Paul calls death uh, in various forms, whether in this life or in the life to come. Well, corresponding to these two kinds of sorrow are two enemies, as we noticed last time, and just to quickly summarize. First of all, I'd like Lydia to read the four verses, these four verses that open uh, the seventh chapter. So, Lydia, would you read about these two enemies, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 4. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perceive us, we have wronged no man, we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Thank you, Lydia. That's amazing, isn't it, that there's a filthiness that comes from two places. So there's really two areas of uh, that the enemy can attack us. Uh, one is through the flesh, and one is through Spirit. Of course, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never an instrument of evil. But the human spirit can be. In fact, uh, the enemy, the great enemy, Satan himself, with all of his demons, loves to attack us in our spirits because uh, that way he gets directly to our minds and hearts, right? So, two areas uh, where the threats are definitely real. Uh, spiritually speaking, through the flesh and through the spirit. And then the verse 4 that Lydia just read is in just in one verse, uh, he says so very, very much. And uh, 
of course, <laughs> really, in, a, in, a, in kind of an amazing way, I think that verse summarizes the whole letter <laughs> to the second Corinthians, because it mentions all these different aspects uh, that Paul touches on here. He mentions uh, his own testimony. He mentions uh, uh, how he had reached out to the Thessalonians on many occasions and and how sometimes that led to a crisis in the church. And certainly he's writing this letter because of one of those crises, right? And uh, yet um, he said, I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation and filled with comfort. So that summarizes really uh, uh, from Paul's perspective, uh, the whole the whole uh, message of this letter, because he's setting forth his own example for others, for the Corinthians and also for all of us. Right. So we also should be filled with comfort, exceeding joyful in all of our tribulations. And and Paul makes a very strong exhortation to the effect that if we also participate in this great ministry of outreach with the truth of God, if we're ambassadors, really, uh, with the message of reconciliation, as Paul is, that we're bold, there will be uh, those that receive our message and those that don't. But in the end, uh, we will see the power of God at work, and we will be able to say, as Paul does here, great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort, exceeding joyful in all our tribulations. So there will be tribulation and trial. It's appointed unto us not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. But the Lord offers us joy in the midst of it all. Okay. Praise God. But, um, there is the possibility of being captured by one of our enemies and and falling uh, aside, as it were, and not therefore experiencing the grace of God and its many blessings as we should, not having even his comfort as we rightly should, right? Uh, what Paul says is that God provides comfort in great and in small ways, and mentions the coming of Titus. And we've we spent much time on that, how God provided his right hand to man, as it were, when absolutely needed. And though Paul had reacted uh, when Titus didn't appear, when he was not where he thought he would be, they would not be together to carry on the ministry together, and Paul went on by himself, didn't even go through that open door, you recall, and certainly regretted that later. But uh, Titus did appear finally, and uh, they ministered together. And this whole letter here is also a result of uh, Titus's ministry. And uh, we've seen how that was. He came back and reported that the Corinthians really had... uh, received the mercy of God and the grace of God and had applied it in their own lives there. And so he came back with good news and shared it with Paul. And Paul was therefore greatly comforted regarding the situation in Corinth. And that brings us to where we are today. God works all things together for our good. Even the small things count. 
and the big things and the comfort shared through others, as we prayed about here earlier, right, is one of the greatest blessings. So our outline today is, first of all, godly sorrow brings benefits to believers and glory to God. Secondly, the sorrow of the world can never bring life but only death. And thirdly, godly sorrow brings true comfort as the mark of his working in us. Okay. We're going to read in a moment. I'm going to ask Elizabeth to read some verses that may seem difficult to comprehend. And I think that's inevitable because the circumstances in Corinth were difficult. And so difficult that Paul even was uh, confused about how to respond to them and had sent a letter which has since been lost. And uh, that letter caused quite a turmoil there in Corinth. And in the end, good things came of it. Very good things indeed that he's been writing about here. And we'll consider this morning again. But uh, also some unexpected things caused the trial of Paul's soul in that he regretted that he'd even sent the letter or that he had written it the way he did. You know, it was a harsh letter, apparently, uh, and could easily have been misunderstood. And, and the enemies, including the false teachers, used the letter against Paul to uh, gather followings for themselves and to turn many or tried to turn many against the apostle. But uh, that kind of a difficult situation is what we find in the world often where people are divided into groups. And in this particular case, there are four groups. <laughs> and Paul is addressing the four here all in a few verses. So no wonder it seems a little difficult to comprehend. One group contains only one person. That's the sinner who had repented. The second group contains those that had forgiven him, those in the church of Corinth that had responded to Paul's exhortation to forgive the sinner if he repented. And they had. They had forgiven him. And there's another group that had never forgiven him. And Paul is going to mention them in chapter 12 in strong terms. And then there's a fourth group. And that group is made up of members of the other three groups, or at least the other two groups. And that contains those believers who now question the apostles' motives and even his love for them because of the harshness of that other letter that he had sent. And so they're wondering about Paul, and the false teachers have easily been able to influence them to turn against Paul. And so these are the, the four groups that Paul's addressing. And now let's read about it. Um, and Elizabeth, I'd like you to read these two verses that say so much, really, uh, and uh, to introduce the section. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Though I may be sorry letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceived that 
the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for but a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Thank you, Elizabeth. So here there's a general principle, and then Paul applies it to the specific situation, and that's that it's very important if we have sorrow to sorrow properly. Please please mute that uh, mic there, Lewis, okay? Thank you. Now, what Paul is going to do is to use himself as an example. He does this, of course, quite often. It is a general uh, way that he exhorts believers is to use himself as an example. He is their example of how God is working today through grace, right? So this is an appropriate thing to do. But in this particular case, it's a complex situation. I mentioned all these four groups. And how they're interacting is uh, something we can hardly imagine, right? There was certainly a lot of unrest and uh, confusion there in Corinth from that. Um, But that Paul can use himself as an example in this case, I think, is what makes his letter so powerful to them. And should be powerful to us because we can see how there's a general principle that's going to be applied, and that also applies to us in our own lives. And let's see how that works. Let's go carefully through this. Uh, And if we miss the point here uh, and don't understand what Paul's writing, we've certainly missed a lot. In fact, I think in that case, we've missed the whole uh, teaching of the letter. I sure hope that isn't true for any of us. Okay, he starts out by saying, what it was that motivated him so much to write this second letter to the Corinthians. He says, though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. Hmm. Okay. He he made them sorry. They'd received the very harsh letter, and that certainly made them sorry in a lot of ways, right? Uh, He says, I don't repent, though I did repent. This word for repent, it's a different word. I think I pointed out to you before. It's not the same word uh, uh, translated earlier with the word English word repent. One means a change of mind and attitude. The other means uh, feeling a certain way, a change in feeling. Okay. Um, and so when he says, I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. He's saying, I regretted having sent the letter, but I don't regret it now. In other words, that was a short-term kind of thing, and ultimately, because of the great spiritual work that was accomplished through this letter, he ends up rejoicing, right? But he did regret that he had sent it after putting it in a Post, as it were, and I think what he what he did probably was uh, hand it to uh, Titus to take to Corinth, and so that was the uh, postal system of the day, right? So God worked through this, is what he is saying. Okay, 
And then he goes on. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner. So here the word repentance is the word that speaks of a change in mind, heart, and attitude. Okay. So he's rejoicing. He says, I don't rejoice because you were so sorry. I rejoice that your sorrow led to a change of heart. Because you were made sorry, he says, after a godly manner. In other words, it was the work of God in you that brought the change of heart. Okay. Well, this is this part's, I hope, easy to understand. And it sets the stage for the rest of uh, the chapter where we see compared now these two different kinds of sorrow that we summarized for you before, right? And this difference between the two kinds of sorrow is at the heart of its message here in this section. So let's go on to understand that better. Uh, verses 10 and 11, Patty, I'd like you to read verses 10 and 11 of Second Corinthians 7. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Okay, thank you. Uh, so the sorrow of the world can never bring true life and blessing, but only death and all that uh, is associated with it. Because what is death? But it, it is the unraveling uh, of what God has provided, right? And <laughs> if it's physical, this wonderful miracle of life ends up being dust in the end, right? To dust thou shalt go, right? Um, if it's spiritual death, uh, it's the unraveling of all that God has blessed us with and replaced with that which no one you would think could ever enjoy, right? Because it means uh, living a life of rebellion and uh, sin and uh, if we enjoy any of it, it's carnal joy that leads to nothing in the end, right? Uh, only destruction uh, and uh, suffering that can never end. So so the sorrow of the world can never bring life, but only death is his point here. What are the words he uses for this? He says repentance was the result. That was a repentance to salvation not to be repented of. So this godly sorrow is the working of God to bring sorrow in the heart. In other words, the conscience was very much activated by the Lord God, and no doubt the Holy Spirit was at work there, right? And it brought about a change in mind and heart. That's what that word for repentance there signifies, a change in mind. In fact, if you look at that Greek word, metanoia, it means a change in mind. Set, a change in thinking. And he says it's not to be repented of. In a different word there. Okay, that's it's not to be regretted. 
I mean, there are many changes in in uh, our thinking that are regretted later, right? Uh, because we see the consequence of them. But this one, this kind, uh, is of God, right? And so it's not possible to regret the great uh, work of God when we see it happening within us and being his blessing, right? But then he says, in contrast, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, these Corinthians could have fixed the situation in a carnal manner, religiously. And that would have been the national way that the human spirit would respond to the challenge, right? Okay, our church structure isn't good enough. We need to have a more authoritarian pastor. We need to have rules and regulations. We need to uh, apply those in such a way that these uh, evils can never happen here again. And so we'll make you sign a covenant, and uh, those that will not sign, all of this stuff happens daily in the churches, okay, and it always has, right? And that's the kind of thing that Paul is recommending against, okay? That's a filthiness of the Spirit working. It's not the work of God, okay? The work of God is through the heart where the truth of God makes the difference in the human heart, right? And it brings about a change which is uh, true and authentic, all right? And so... That's what actually was happening here. And you can see verse 11 summarizes it. They sorrowed after a godly sword, and there were many consequences. And Titus uh, learned of this and brought the good news back to Paul, right? He says, uh, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. That is not talking about them being becoming believers. They were already believers. That's not the issue here. This is salvation in the sense of deliverance from the from the uh, conflict that they were in previously. Okay, so when you see the word salvation, don't assume it's talking about you know eternal salvation from the consequences of sin or something like that. That's one of the ways that the word for salvation is used, but it's not the only way. Here he's talking about a deliverance from this particular trial that they were undergoing at the time, okay? So Paul says there are no regrets for this kind of deliverance. It was the fruit of the working of Almighty God. And the other kind of sorrow, he says, can never lead to those blessings, right? That kind of sorrow, the kind that leads to a carnal resolution of the issue at hand. That is what we see in the world of unbelief. That it only leads in the end to constant conflict, constant disappointments that come upon one until finally there's no place to turn. They turn to all kinds of evil. It could be drugs, could be alcohol, could be some other kinds of perversions, right? And yet these things never provide uh, satisfaction and certainly they never receive comfort through them. And yet the sorrow that's godly in the end 
brings comfort. And that's our next point. Godly sorrow brings true comfort as it is the mark of his working in us. The mark of God's working in us. True comfort. And reading that, Jerry, would you please read those precious verses for us in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we uh, spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Thank you, Jerry. Okay, so <laughs> that's how he ends the chapter. The whole tone has changed to the comfort of God here. That has now been received by so many, by these in Corinth who were in great need, by Titus who went as Paul's emissary to Corinth. He was comforted, and in the end, Paul was comforted, and how God had worked everything out in the end. But why does he say, Though in verse 12, wherefore, though I wrote to you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong. That's that sinner who's repentant. But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. It just kind of seems strange, at least it has to me, that uh, he would make such a strong statement as this as to why he wrote the letter and he didn't do it for the obvious reasons that we might have thought in fact he even says before what the reasons were and here he seems to be putting the emphasis in another place he says the real concern that i had was that our care for you in the sight of god might appear to you in other words that these false teachers that have uh, tried to lead the Corinth the ends of, to uh, refuse uh, Paul as their apostle and to rather accept the ministry of those that only have evil and lies to share, right? That they somehow might be thwarted in their endeavors. And and so you might wonder, why why is that particular thing bothering Paul so much that he would make this statement the way he does here? And I think there's a good reason for it. And the reason is a very simple one. Everything they knew about the Lord had come from Paul. 
they were his children in the Lord. Okay? Everything they knew of God. Okay, so for them to turn against Paul means they are turning against the word of Paul, which is the truth of God. And from Paul's point of view, his ministry was bound to that word, and he sacrificed everything for the sake of it. Okay, so to to present it faithfully was his life uh, motivation and uh, interest. And uh, so in every way, that's really how he is living, is to present that word boldly. And as a result, see God work. Now, he had seen God work in, in so many ways, right? So that was just a, a sort of an authentication to him, personally speaking, of how God was using that word. And so when false teachers come in and turn the tables, turn everything upside down, it cuts to the very root of the working of God, okay? So I think that's why here he wants to sort of summarize the whole thing by simply saying that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Okay, praise God. And it did, it did, and therefore uh, they did repent, and therefore they also received great comfort through that, right? And so did Titus when this was reported, and then so did Paul. So you see, there's a mutuality, comfort to comfort. And that really takes us, uh, I think, to the end of Paul's point here, which is that he had boasted about them, even when all the evidence was to the contrary. (laughs) Uh, This was the most rebellious church (laughs) that he had ministered to. How could he have had such confidence in them? And you remember what he says earlier about that, about the basis for the confidence has to be in what God has accomplished in Christ. And Patty, I'd like you to read those verses for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, we've, we dwelt on that before, but 2 Corinthians 5 verses 19 through 21. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God, in him. Okay, amen, amen. So that's the place Paul stood. That's the place that he said the Corinthians had to stand on that precious truth, right? And when we do that, when we stand there, yes, we will suffer trials and tribulation. And yet, in the end, uh, what will we have? We'll have the comfort of God, right? 
if we turn aside into carnal means of, of resolving our issues, we will not have that comfort any longer for a time, right? So in conclusion, I'd like us to read a couple of verses that uh, really stood out to me as we were uh, going through this last time and today, but and, and also a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter six. But um, Lewis, I'd like you to read those two sort of pivotal verses there that open up chapter six. Chapter six, verses one and two. Lewis? We then, as walkers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard thee in time accepted, and in the day of salvation have supported thee. Behold, now is a second time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you very much. And and then Tom, that other pivotal verse there, Second Corinthians chapter seven. Verse 1. Tom? Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Well, considering these all very much on the apostle's mind and heart when he writes this letter. How could he have had anything less than full confidence in what the Lord God was doing through his ministry in Corinth? And so the question for us is, do we have that same level of confidence in what the Lord is doing? Or are we struggling? Are we pleading with God, thinking maybe he hasn't heard us, uh, thinking that he's allowing things that uh, certainly could have been different if only uh, this or that was done or said, right? I mean, are we second-guessing everything we did, regretting this and that? Or do we have confidence like Paul did? Here he had confidence in how God ultimately was going to make something great in Corinth, right? Not every individual may be a part of that in the end. It's never a promise that all will receive the truth and live in the light of it, right? But uh, for Paul, it was comfort in the end that was the mark of how God was working, and he had seen that demonstrated. And I can't forget, and I don't think you should either, the first verses in the letter, right, in chapter 1, goes like this. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble with the comfort wherewith we are comforted of God. That's how Paul opens the letter to the Corinthians. Yes, this was especially relevant to them since now they needed another exhortation. The pendulum had apparently swung all the way to the opposite extreme. They had overreacted. Now some felt very guilty regarding their former failures 
and they were in a downward spiral spiritually. It's a human response, really. And Paul calls it the filthiness of the flesh, really, but thinks that somehow we can get out through some kind of human means. But uh, that would all be contrary to how God works under grace. Instead, Paul writes about how God has provided comfort to him and will do the same for them if only they would be willing to receive it as the blessing of God, right? And this letter is so different from ones we may have been written writing. Uh, I don't know whether we share the same level of comfort with others that we've received, or are we silent and feeling strange about even referring to how God has blessed us? But we shouldn't be. We should be bold to share. Paul says, the comfort that we've received is given to us that we might share it with others. So let's not forget there are two kinds of sorrow, the one godly, the other is of this world. The comfort of God comes from the one and not the other. What a precious thing to have the comfort of our Lord God dwelling within us and motivating us day by day and hour by hour. Praise God all. I hope this has been a blessing to you. Certainly been a blessing to me to spend this time in chapter 7. Any questions or comments before we close today? Jim, this is Lewis. I just want to make a quick comment. And as you mentioned toward the end, have confidence. And confidence require a object. In this case, uh, I believe is uh, the God's uh, faithfulness. Yeah. Because His faithfulness, so we can trust Him. So we have confidence in everything He has said. He has promised. Yes. Yes. And. The word goes forth as the tool that God uses, so it does bear its fruit, doesn't it? So, yeah, we may not see it right off, but it's out there and working. That's the promise. God will be faithful. Praise God. Any other comments before we close today? <clears throat> Father God, sure, thank you. Go ahead. Sorry, Jerry. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. Just... Yeah, you know, I heard a pastor once say about, you know, everybody's got a hole in them. You're always trying to fill it with the, the earthly carnal stuff and how often, you know, you you resort to that and then regret it because it's painful and all that. Just how often we return to it, even though we're in the Word, you just constantly return to it. Like, why do you do that over and over and over again? Right. Right. <laughs> it's a human nature, right? <laughs> It means taking matters into our own hands <laughs> instead of giving them over to the Lord's hands. Amen. Good point. Hmm. Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us so greatly through this word today. And I pray, Father, that we would be willing in our spirits, having been uh, energized by you, <laughs> willing to receive your 
comfort and uh, to let you do your work in your way and not uh, try to find a better way <laughs> ourselves. Father, and uh, when we do so, we're not all caught up and overwhelmed by the circumstances of this world or the, of our lives here, but, but rather uh, able to rest and to have peace, not only your peace, but the peace even that passes all understanding. What a wonderful thing indeed. And Father, thank you that you've offered that to us and we've often received it. I pray that that would be our constant uh, occupation as we seek to be lights in this world and we seek to be ambassadors of uh, this great, this, this, this overwhelmingly great reconciliation that's been accomplished by our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your grace and its abundance and may we enjoy it today and always. And we would thank you in Christ's name and amen and amen.